This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Allison Cornell, and I was just on Dr. Karen's show. A couple things covered on the show and why you need to listen. It's critical to excel in every opportunity provided. No one wants a big butt, but you'll have to listen in order to learn why. And it's important to help everyone achieve their own personal excellence. So stay tuned. My guest today distinguished herself as an executive leader in top Fortune 500 companies. Her financial genius led her companies to profitability and becoming better places to work. If you are a woman who aspires to executive leadership at the highest levels, or you are a leader who wants to prepare talented women for executive level careers, be sure to stay tuned. My guest today, Allison Cornell is an accomplished, highly skilled global senior executive with extensive board of director interaction and significant executive leadership accomplishments in animal health, healthcare, chemicals and consumer products, and telecommunications industries. She's a director and audit committee chair at Zevo Bioscience Inc. and Shu2 Pharma. Her previous positions include serving as Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Compassion First Pet Hospitals, a family of more than 43 specialty and emergency veterinary hospitals located throughout the United States. Ms. Cornell was also Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the International Flavors and Fragrances Company, which is a global creator of flavors and fragrances for consumer products. Corporate Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Covance Incorporated, a drug development company with annual revenue of $2.5 billion and more than 12,500 employees, located in more than 60 countries. She also previously had 19 years of experience with AT&T, where she held leadership roles of increasing responsibility, including leading finance for a $30 billion division. Ms. Cornell is also known for leading business turnarounds, driving business transformation, accelerated growth, and sustainable returns. She's led cost reduction, restructuring, built and retained high-performing teams, strengthened financial and operational controls, and enhanced and created shareholder value. She added business value when she used specialized metrics to achieve the highest valuation for her industry to date, completed five acquisitions, developed comprehensive risk management frameworks, transformed a slow-growing business into a major growth driver for the company, moved below industry average margins into above industry averages, significantly improved cash flow, and negotiated strategic partnerships. Ms. Cornell has a strong financial background, risk management acumen, and a natural affinity for collaborating, 
cultivating and engaging diverse partner relationships. Ms. Cornell also holds a Master of Business Administration degree with honors from Rutgers Graduate School of Management and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Rutgers College, also with honors. She's a graduate of the Program for Management Development at the Harvard Business School, as well as numerous other professional development programs. She's also a certified treasury professional. She's been married to her husband, Dave, for 30 years with residences in Marco Island, Florida, and New Jersey. She loves animals and global travel, having been to 77 countries, all seven continents, all 50 states in the U.S., and she has a twin sister and an older brother. As a philanthropist, Ms. Cornell focuses on reducing the maternal and infant mortality rate and increasing the education level of women in Nepal through the building of birthing centers, and school bathrooms. So as you can see, I have a very exciting guest with me today. So thank you so much, Allison, for being with me on the program today. Really appreciate you being here. I'm delighted to be here, Dr. Karen. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Yeah, so wonderful. You have so much wisdom to share. So Allison, I want to just jump right in so that we won't waste a minute and really highlighting your vast experience. So I want to start really by asking you about this whole CFO role, because we know that women make up only about 10% of the CFOs who work in companies that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange. However, in your case, you've been part of that elite group for at least two of your CFO roles that you've had. And so what did you do to achieve that level of success. And especially at the time when you were doing it, it just wasn't very common at all. If it's 10% now, it's probably much less back then. So tell us about that. How did you make it happen? I'm happy to. So I started with AT&T as an intern, uh, having graduated college in three years with the psychology major and philosophy minor. And at that point, there were job freezes at AT&T because that's when AT&T was considered Ma Bell. A monopoly that uh, was required to break up. And so given the job freezes, once I completed my internship, I was hired as a contractor. The first job that opened up after the job freezes at AT&T was in finance. And that's literally why finance. So I took that role and that became the path I pursued. But my experience at AT&T was invaluable. When I was there in my mid-20s, you know, I took every opportunity to watch different executives and said to myself, you know, why not me? Like, they're no smarter than I am. And so I set a goal for myself of becoming a public company CFO on the New York Stock Exchange by the time I was 50. And it wasn't anything I broadcasted. It was something that I committed to myself. And really, that set the stage for the roles that I took, why I took them, and choices that I made. And, you know, it was a goal where I said, you know, how do you know you made it, you know, in your, in your own mind? It was a hard enough goal with ages and circumstances where it was, you know, the level of difficulty was high. And so that for me was, was my definition of success. And, and back then it was, I called it a six foot white male club where women, regardless of the function, had to do two to three times the work as men had to do. Um, But recognizing that was key, 
I was goal-oriented and willing to outwork everyone. And I say AT&T is a good place to be from as they really provided foundational business skills that I was able to leverage throughout my career, um, which includes process orientation. They were very process oriented, learning how to I'll say swim with the sharks, very politically charged environment, understood how to read a room, you know, understood how to get things done in the fewest number of steps as possible, but also as many as necessary. Uh, because sometimes it's just not a straight line in terms of being able to get things accomplished. And most importantly, I learned the the importance of building high-performing teams. Also, there, I looked at the skill set required to be a public company CFO and actually interviewed the CFO of AT&T at the time and tried to ensure that each job I took added a new skill set that filled in the blanks of my resume. And I'd say times were a bit different then where AT&T allowed you to pretty much change jobs every 18 months for your own development. And it, it allowed me to almost target specific roles where as a result of being in that role, I added a skill uh, to my resume. And also important, I made it a point to excel at every opportunity provided. You know, I raised my hand to work on different projects, uh, received increased visibility, and also learned a lot about the operational part of the business. You know, and I, I now and then view myself as a business person with financial skills versus a, fi- a finance person. So by the time I was 40, having spent 19 years at AT&T, I realized that if I was serious about achieving my goal, I needed to leave as the likelihood of achieving my goal there was minimal. So after leaving AT&T, I interviewed at 75 different companies in different industries and chose to join Covance as it had a path to the CFO chair. And during my interview with the CFO, uh, I indicated certainly in a non-threatening way that at some point in the future, I was interested in his job. Which fortunately he laughed and you know said that was great because he was looking at a success for a successor. Uh, all I needed to do was consistently perform at a high level uh, and essentially prove myself, which I did. And I'm happy to say I was named CFO at Covance, uh, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 2012 when I was 50. Everything fell into place. You know, I just love the story, Allison, because there's several components to it that I think is so important. One, first of all, you set a goal for yourself. And a lot of times people don't realize the value or the importance of that and things that other people might have thought, well, women have to work twice as hard or three times as hard. You just took that on as a challenge. You did whatever you needed to do, recognizing that this was all part of your preparation so that you would be ready for what you wanted to step into. You interviewed people who were already in those chairs. You watched, you paid attention. You took advantage you know, of the development that was provided. I think those are really important success skills that you just unpacked right there. Yeah, absolutely. I find today that folks, younger folks, if you will, are not as, I'll say, ambitious or career-oriented you know, in terms of wanting to define a path for themselves. It's kind of very meandering. 
is a choice in and of itself. But, you know, if you're going to, you know, want to achieve executive level, I'll say C-suite kind of role, you're not going to get there by by meandering. That makes sense. You really have to be very intentional and very strategic about that pathway forward. So I'm really glad you brought that up because a lot of times people are also thinking in a passive way that somebody else is going to be managing their career. In reality, you're managing your own career as you go along is what I'm hearing you say. Something that was interesting that you said earlier too, Allison, is you said when you were at AT AT&T, which turned out to be a place of great opportunity coming in as an intern and then going on as a contractor, you said that you weren't necessarily wired for doing finance. That's where the opening was. And so you walked into it. So tell us a little bit about that, because I can't imagine, for example, myself stepping into a finance role. That's more on the psychology philosophy side that you also had in your academic background. That's my sweet spot. So did you also have sort of financial acumen that you can go back to and remember somehow in your history and past? Or what's this truly completely new? So it was completely new. However, my very first role in finance was in systems development, financial systems development. And um, what it leveraged was my skill set at the time to communicate, listen and communicate. So my role was essentially speaking to folks in finance and translating their requirements for IT programmers. I was really their user interface, documented what the needs were, worked on testing. It wasn't technical accounting. For me, it was more communication. And how do I communicate in a way that the user at the end of the day gets what they need you know, from the programmer? So it was almost a middle person and did so well in that role Um, I was then put into uh, a uh, management development program that was in internal audit and which was a wonderful opportunity where in audit, I was, I did both finance and IT audits, which was unusual because I was doing IT. They, They allowed me to do both, learn so much. And you did audits in all different parts of the company, which also helped learn about business models. But I think it was back to my comment, you try and excel at every role you're in. And I consider myself a student of the business where I don't act like I know everything. I ask questions. I'm not afraid to say I don't know and be taught. If I didn't know, I would either learn it on my own, learn it on the job, And so I think that's helpful too, but it's that consistency, it's kind of a demonstrated track record of consistency of delivery, where you become dependable, you come, the people ask for you, because they know you can trust to get what they need done. Finance is also actually intuitive from my perspective. Again, I'm not, not an accountant. And it's actually a misconception that many people have where they assume if you're a CFO of a public company, company, you're a CPA. I don't have my CPA. I've surrounded myself always with great accountants that they have the expertise. I rely on them. You know, I certainly know what I need to be to to, uh, have the financial credentials I do, but at the same time, don't need to be an expert. You could pick and choose where to be the expert. Yeah, you're bringing up something really important because if we're thinking about executive roles, it's really at that strategic level and you're thinking enterprise wide and you're thinking about the business 
And then lots of people, like you say, that you can hire for the technical pieces. You don't have to get in the weeds and do all of that. And in fact, sometimes people who have that expertise have a hard time moving out of it to really rise above and and to think at this more enterprise level that you're thinking of. I'm also just kind of struck by the fact that in your background, we think about the background in psychology, the background in philosophy, plus business. This is like a natural combination for being that translator that you were talking about, this communicator who is not just bringing a financial lens, but you also have a people understanding and a communication understanding that marries the two in a unique way. And I have to say, I've met a lot of CFOs in my day, most of whom are men, and most do not have that ability. (laughs) So that's kind of like a unique combination, you know, that you have just because of who you are and your own background. So that's, that's pretty phenomenal that that's the case. So Allison, you mentioned some of the challenges, if you will, particularly as a woman coming along at that time and setting this goal of being CFO by the time that you're 50 years old. What were some of the barriers and roadblocks and maybe even prejudices that you ran into and that you had to overcome in order to be successful in what at that time certainly was a man's world? I think it is really breaking the barriers of, uh, I'd say, the different uh, clubs you know, that existed, being taken seriously. Part of the roles I chose over time helped me align with folks that would, in the company, leaders in the company, um, that kind of looked beyond and really valued what I brought to the table. And so, you know, the reason I say that is it, it took maneuvering and, and back to say watching watching who to align yourself with, who not to. You know, because in any company, I think, and especially actually at AT&T at the time, there were there were women who helped women and there weren't met that many high-level executives, but for the ones who were, there were women who helped women and there were women who didn't. And that also was a lesson to me is, you know, I want to be the one who's going to help not only women, you know, everyone, but also I'm going to be the one that if I'm able to advance, I'm going to help pull people up with me. You certainly have this skill set. It's a step-by-step, job-by-job maneuvering that occurred, you know, especially at my time there, because it did have its own culture. And really, you know, the upper echelon at the time was the white male club. So, and I'll, I will say that, uh, you know, at the time, the CEO even said to the one of the top, top women in the company, you should be home raising your kid. You shouldn't be here in the boardroom, which was also very eye-opening and certainly would not be allowed today. And I'd say times have changed. The way that people communicate with each other has changed, you know, since, since my time there. But uh, again, all very eye-opening experiences that helped even while that conversation wasn't with me, it helped you to understand what barriers you may experience and help you think in advance as to what are you going to do, you know, to get around them, over them, so forth. You know, it's interesting because, yes, that certainly would be a prejudice or a barrier that someone would think that, you know, you should be at home raising your children and maybe that there are other options And so that leads into another question, which I want to ask in a second, but I want to summarize this. You're saying that 
success also involved having the right relationships with people who were going to be facilitative of success. So not only were you committed to excellence in everything you did, you were dependable. People knew that if they gave something to you, you were going to get it done at a high level. And there were relationships with people who would allow, maybe crack a door open so you could get into a club or might promote you in some way. And that people might be mistaken to think that relationships are not important. So what I'm hearing you say is they are important and you have to ferret out which ones are going to help and which ones aren't. So there's some discernment, you know, that's involved in that process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it wasn't only relationships in finance. It's actually more often than not relationships built with the operations heads, you know, heads of different business units. Um, and again, at the time, these were $30 billion business units and, you know, very broad and global. And yes, yeah, so the operational folks, by asking for you, you know, that was kind of a feather in your cap, you know, to be their business finance business partner, feather in your cap, and also provided opportunity for visibility. You know, and when I left AT&T, I, not only was the CFO a uh, reference, but also many of the operational partners that I supported. Uh, were references not only on the job at Covance, but for jobs after that. So those were very you know tight relationships, and and you could reach back now uh, to folks you work with and um, ask advice, um, be a reference for them. So I will share. So this is what I call my favorite ladies. Most recently, actually a couple weekends ago, AT and T five AT and T women who actually used to that I used to mentor. And we've stayed in touch, usually Christmas time, go to dinner, um, but now people have been moving. We actually met down here in Florida for a long weekend. And I take pride because I know I've impacted them career-wise, advice-wise. And so to me, they're my, le- they're my legacy and very proud of the business women they've become. And so it's uh, rewarding to see the success that they've had and, uh, you know, having grown, helped develop them so many years back. Actually, I'm really excited to hear you say this because as you probably know, I'm really passionate about (laughs) the subject of living leadership legacy. And I believe that, you know, that mentoring, that development and that succession process is intentional and that we really do have to pay it forward as well. And of course, we're both at the stage in our lives When we can do that, we have lots of years of experience and there are people I'm mentoring now who are coming along as psychologists, for example, who want to be in this consulting world that I'm in. And there are things that I wish I had known back then that I can share with them and so on so that they can be successful and be successful faster in a sense. Back in the day when I was doing some of the things I was doing, there weren't a whole lot of role models or people who were willing to do the mentoring role as we're talking about. So I hear you say you've received some benefit from relationships and you're also paying it forward in relationships where you're developing people too. So it's a give and take, and that's an important concept for people to be aware of as well. You know, Allison, you said earlier that it was okay for someone to say that someone should be at home, let's say raising their children. And I would say from the younger women that I'm talking to today, that some of that mindset is still out there. People just don't say it as boldly, you know, in the workplace. So I want to ask you this, when you think about sacrifices, maybe even that you've had to make 
in order to achieve at this level. And a lot of women in our generation sacrificed marriage, some sacrificed children, and, and various other things in order to be successful in business. If you think about it for yourself, what would you say some of the personal sacrifices are that you had to make? First, I'll start with children. You know, at the time, the majority, really the high, high majority of executive women did not have children. And so for me, that was a choice. I mean, fortunately, I have a wonderful husband. We've been married 30 years. Having children was not important to him. And so that was something that, you know, together uh, we opted, you know, not to do. My MBA, for example, I, because AT&T was so competitive and so political, I, you know, I did my MBA one class at a time over seven years because what you didn't want to do is step out of line because you'd lose your spot in terms of potential for advancement. And so as you can imagine that just added to the workday. You know, I would work 24-7. And so in order to make sure things were delivered with excellence, you know, make sure that I use a term, nobody wants a big butt. I always ask, you know, when someone's going to talk to you about it, talk about somebody for being promoted. Do they have a but? Yes, I would promote Allison, but what I made made it my business to do is make sure that there were no buts that someone could say. It took away all excuses so that the, if a promotion was available, I would get it. That's how I viewed things and, and really put in the extra time, put in the extra effort. But I would say it's really sacrifice, you know, time with family, time with my husband, you know, personal things with, you know, with the intention, you know, intentionally to achieve the, what I, the success I've had. Yeah. And I love that because you're also saying these were intentional choices that you made, understanding the landscape and understanding the importance of the goal that you had set for yourself. And you knew that in order to remove those butts, this is what was going to be necessary in order to move forward. Because it's not like your career is happening to you. You are creating it for yourself, understanding the context in which you're operating in order to create the career of your dreams and what it is that you, you wanted to do. So now that you're kind of on this backside of it and have, have retired from a lot of these positions and roles and so on and so forth, someone said, in what way has it been worth it to go through this process? What have you gained from it that you think is important? First, I start with people. So I've built over the course of my career, several high performing teams. And, you know, to build high performing teams that comes with you know, understanding the skill sets you need to get the work done, actually two different roles. I fired about 75% of my finance team and in some cases was not popular um, because folks were friends, but friends don't necessarily get the work done. You know, skill sets, the right people in the right job get, get you know, the work done. And so with the high performing teams that I've built, I feel like I've built a, and I think I used this word before, a legacy. Each, and, and you know, my teams were, were my family. They know for sure I had their back. I cared about them. And to me, it was always, um, I'll take the hit. 
if something went wrong, I will never, never scapegoat people, never blame people. It's something went wrong. It's, and it's my team. It's me. And I, you know, own that. And as a result, it was a very safe place because my team knew I had their back. Um, if something went wrong, it was okay, we'll fix it. So it was while I set the standards, you know, for the team high, what I found was people stepped up and I would work right along with them. And in some cases I saw, oh, you know, I know you're not going to be able to get X done. Let me jump in, get that done, take the pressure off you so you can go focus that. So it was very much of a team environment. But back to, I, when you, you hear the quote, you know, people won't remember what you did. They'll remember how you made them feel. And it's very much, I mean, today, over the course of my career, I say folks from AT&T, folks from Covance, from IFS, folks from Compassion First, all still reach out and, you know, ask for advice, ask for references. And, you know, in my retirement party from Compassion First, I mean, just the, how people shared that I impacted them uh, was just so, so humbling. Uh, it's really humbling. And so that to me is why it's, why it's worth it. It's all the people you touch and you only touch, it's a ripple effect. You only touch your employee, you touch their families, you touch, you know, how they, how they treat their teams. So it, it really is a ripple effect. And that's why I view, I, I start and end with people. Yeah. I love it because you're talking about this impact that's legacy related you have, in essence, you have seeded the workplace with people mm-hmm. who have some similar values because you've inculcated those values into them. You've shared that. They've shared it with additional people along the way, and it's making a difference. Even though you may personally be out of the workplace, your influence is not out of the workplace. It's still there. So, I know there's some foundational principles that have carried you throughout your career, and I'm sure you're transferring those in this legacy piece as you're mentoring and developing other people. So what are those foundational principles that you've had and how have they made a difference in your life as well as now in the lives of others? So we'll start by just a quick story. And yeah, we was checking in with one of the folks from uh, Compassion First, and she shared with me that you know, in one of the staff meetings, uh, they said, "What would Allison do?" And though you know, I'm not there. They literally kind of that's their that's their uh, test. But the foundational principles I would start with: make a difference every day, and you know, be fearless. Uh, and why I say be fearless is I fundamentally believe, and it is foundational, that God has a plan and I am where I need to be at any point in time and his will be done. And so even if something doesn't go as planned, that's part of the plan. And so I think it's very liberating not to be afraid. You know, we, I, we already shared, you know, it, it is all about people, you know, key to success building a great high-performing team, helping each other uh, to attain their own personal excellence. I, you know, I think another important principle is listening, not only for what's said, 
um, but equally important, what not said, what's not said. And I think that's where the psychology major comes in. It's because, you know, people sometimes say what they think you want to hear. But if you watch the nonverbals, if you watch, you really just watch them and, and really understand more than, you know, people are multifaceted and to understand just one facet is not by any means understanding who they are. And so I think that truly, truly listening is important. Being humble, being a student of the business uh, is foundational. I've also always done a self-evaluation. Uh, you know, what went well, what could I do different, what could I do better? And last but not least, I think, try not to take anyone for granted because you don't know how much time you have, you know, on the earth and, and you know, you should make people feel good about themselves, you know, not take them for granted and, you know, just be, I said, last, last foundational principle, be grateful. Yeah, that's a huge one. That's a big one. I love these, um, this whole notion of, no matter what's happening, even if it seems negative in a certain way of looking at it, it's all part of our development. It's all part of our plan. And God's going to use that, you know, for his benefit. And even the people who come into our lives, as you said, don't take them for granted. It's all about getting these things done through the people. So be grateful, you know, through this whole process of, of what God is allowing. So that leads me to the next thing. Who was maybe the most influential person for you in your career and why? <laughs> because we've been talking about the other half of the ways you're resourcing other people, but you know, surely some people resourced you too. So who's been most influential? You know, as I mentioned, you started with AT&T as an intern and you know, with the breakup after the internship, I was hired as a contractor. And I was fortunate that my first boss at AT&T, uh, her name was Ann Drum, who with her support, I said guidance, inspiration, I mean, she literally changed the course of my life uh, and set me on a path for success that I was destined to achieve. I mean, she encouraged me to aim high. Um, she said, challenge the status quo, you know, believe in myself and I can accomplish anything I set my mind to and never settle. Mm-hmm. And, and importantly, and then, you know, we just spoke about in, she told me God has a plan, you know, for each of us and we're where he wants to be for a particular reason at a point in time. And, you know, she walked the talk and and lived the advice she provided. She personally always wanted to be a medical doctor. And um, when at the time, again, this was when the monopoly was breaking up, um, she decided to take a package, retire from AT&T, move back to her um, home state of Alabama, and she became a medical doctor. And so, you know, it's back to you can achieve anything you set your mind to. She absolutely did. And I'm grateful for her every day. That's a wonderful example because both of you demonstrated that you can achieve what you set your mind to and have as a goal. And you didn't lower the goal because it was late in life or because other people weren't doing it or for any of these reasons. So I think that's very powerful. You sort of had a role model in her. She developed you. Now you're developing other people and, and the legacy is continuing. It's it's going forward. That's very powerful. I, I just love it. I think it's phenomenal, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I thank you both for, for operating in the business world in, in the way in which you've described. You know, I know you care about women in general, not just in business. 
you are really a proponent for women's success and education and so on. And as we said earlier, you're a philanthropist and you have a real passion for educating girls in developing countries like Nepal. And one of the things that you said is that you actually increase their ability to get an education by building school bathrooms, for example, is one thing. Tell us about that. How does that relate to girls getting an education? Nepal, the uh, culture is very uh, patriarchal. So girls are valued less than boys. And so, you know, in especially the rural communities, because the work that I've done is is in the, uh, I said, most impoverished rural communities uh, in Nepal. And so, what happens if a school doesn't have a bathroom, which m- most don't, when, the, when you know, boys or girls go to the bathroom, they go behind a bush, uh, for example. Now, when the girls get their period, um, culturally, it's viewed as impure. And so, the, you know, the boys make fun. They have no way to, and they use sanitary pads there, no way to change their sanitary pads uh, or any privacy, right? Because they're going behind a bush. Boys are making fun. And so what happens is they drop out of school and they drop out of school. And what's, what's concerning to me is their parents are happy about it, right? Because now they have a separate set of hands, one more set of hands to work in the field to help them. It's not really important that the girls are educated. It's important that the boys are educated. And so there's nothing where the parents naturally, you know, push the girls back to school, push the girls to have higher aspirations. And so what the by having providing a school building school bathrooms it helps them stay in school it helps them not to drop out and if and from my perspective if they could stay in you know get through grade school have an opportunity to progress you know it's the, it totally increases the likelihood of their success because many girls are married in nepal at age of 12 15 and get pregnant, and which is one of the reasons that Nepal has one of the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the world. So if you can keep them in school, chances are they don't drop out, they don't get married young, they don't get pregnant young, keeps them alive. And so it's it's one big circle where each of these things really have a ripple effect. Wow, that's really a profound example. And thank you for explaining how that all works together. How did you end up selecting Nepal? There are lots of countries on the globe where they need help of this type. So what inspired you to work in Nepal in particular? So when I was at Covance, so um, the CFO at Covance, I was an executive sponsor. We partnered with Care International, and I was the executive sponsor for um, building birthing centers and school bathrooms in Nepal. And it was a three-year program where the company donated money and we also raised a lot of money. I've been to Nepal so far um, three times uh, as the executive uh, sponsor. And what I found was that once I was there, really the first time, you what was really eye-opening was there you know, they're many, they're mostly Buddhist, some Hindu, but they have nothing. I mean, we went, as I said, to the most impoverished areas where, you know, no lighting, you know, no electricity, no transportation. They really just had each other. 
And they were had such inner peace and were so, so incredibly grateful for us providing, you know, the birthing centers that were built while it was there, because essentially if they went into labor, they would walk at night for seven miles in labor with wild animals, no lights. I mean, it's unbelievable. They may have to cross rivers. And until more recently, it was women doing it on their own because men were not involved in the process. And so by putting a birthing center in their community, you really taught you know, that, that they had other healthcare choices. So it was a three-year program. And after that, I kept in touch with the folks at Care International and really started using my own you know, uh, resources to uh, continue that program because I saw it's for sure I'm saving and changing lives. Absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, that to me is, you know, you have something to show for an investment. That's really so gratifying. And so now I, since I have about eight birthing centers uh, that have built uh, 16 school bathrooms. And so it's really just continue to plan on doing that. Uh, there's so many areas that still need it, but that that was really the, once you see it, it's not like you could step away and say, okay, I'm done. It's it, probably till the day I die, <laughs> to need to, uh, to uh, invest there and help the community. And, and a lot of it too is, it's not that they have, you know, their handout. They're genuinely just so grateful and have nothing. And it's just that, uh, that inner peace and happiness with what they have. It's, you really don't see that much today. You know, I just say bless you for continuing that work, which is obviously so needed. And I like what you said about you are saving lives and you can see that every day and providing options and choices and alternatives for people all the way across the world, somewhere else. So again, the legacy is continuing and it's a global legacy. You've worked at global yeah. companies, global businesses. <laughs> And this legacy is also global as well. And what it says to me is that there's so many ways to have a life of significance. And God calls us each in different ways. Some people, he truly does call to have their own children and to raise them. And then there are other people he calls to come alongside God's children more globally, whether they be leaders at work or these girls and women in Nepal or wherever they might be. Yet it's all important work that he's commissioned in essence, and prepared you for and gifted you to be able to actually do. So I'm inspired by that. I'm glad to hear about it and to know, you know, how you're impacting the world in these ways. Now, I mentioned the word global. You love global travel. You've traveled a lot. You've been to 77 countries and all seven continents and all 50 states in the United States. How has that global travel even influenced the lens through which you view the world, because you get to see maybe a little bit more than some other people have seen who might've only stayed in their city or their county, never even gone anywhere else in their state. So I really believe global travel um, really broadens your mind. It, it does, it opens up the lens uh, that you use to view the world. So you, so it's not, the, you can never view this world the same way, you know, after you've had the experiences. So it influences your perspective, you know, it helps you provide different ways of looking at things. And, you know, in terms of people say 77 countries, you know, a lot of people, when they travel, they 
travel for business. They just you know, land at the airport, go to meetings and leave. That to me, it doesn't count. That doesn't count as a country checked off. I literally have to stay a couple days, get immersed. You know, I, I try and hire a local guide that will help really Im help me to immerse myself in the local community, learn about the culture, learn about customs, religion, food. Like as an example, when I went to Rwanda, my guide literally went through the whole genocide process. You know, this man, every all of his family, he had, I think, seven brothers and sisters killed. His parents were killed. And he helped me to understand because I take advantage of, you know, ask questions. He was very forthcoming in terms of, you know, they have the whole process of forgiveness now, you know, in, in Rwanda. It helped me to understand what he went through, the, you know, the forgiveness process, what the country's all about. And so it's really understanding, you know, how people act to politics and so forth. It really helps you to appreciate what people have been through you know, how they've been changed by their experiences. And then also how how you could become a better person as a result, you know, of what you've learned. You know, most times I, I, I you're touched by one or more of the experiences uh, right there. And also I think, you know, I mentioned listening several times. It helps you to become a better listener, especially if you're in a country that doesn't, isn't naturally English speaking, you have to figure out how to be, how to communicate in different ways and then to be understood. And, you know, it helps make connections. So anyway, I, I, it has helped me immensely to really be a much broader, open, open-minded uh, person than I think I otherwise would be. You know, you were talking about how that it makes you a better person and you can learn something from someone else. What's an example of something that you have actually learned from one of these international experiences that you apply to your life? I'm going to, I'm going to go back to Nepal. Uh, just to say that's a, that's a very easy example um, for me. And that is really to be grateful. You having been there, I said, said three times, you can't, leave the country or, or I'll say re-enter the U.S. without really understanding how lucky we are, how appreciative, you know, you are for everything, for everything that I have and how blessed, you know, we are. And so I think you, it reminds you, even though, you know, I mentioned in terms of the foundational principle, try not to take things for granted. And you realize when you see you know, poverty in, in India, you know, or you know, things like that, how little they have and happy they are and how we take things for granted. And so, uh, you know, I think time and time again, it's really the gratefulness that I come back with and, and remind myself, don't take things for granted and, and really give back. Amen. Yeah. Be thankful. Be grateful. Don't take things for granted. Give back. We know that in your retirement years, you're still serving in director roles and you're mentoring people and you're doing this awesome work in Nepal. What else is part of your retired world and life now what, in this <laughs> chapter? What haven't we mentioned that you're doing that we should know about? <laughs> So I do have uh, uh, three trips planned um, back since uh, things seem to be opening up from COVID. So 
I'm heading to the Maldives in Sri Lanka in May, going back actually to Nepal and Bhutan in November. The trip that I had planned there was actually moved three times because of COVID. And I've never been to Bhutan, so that will be new for me. And then I have a, a Panama Canal cruise scheduled for November of 2023. A bit of the fun side, I've taken some golf lessons, uh, so plan to play that much more frequently than in the past. I'm on a bocce team. Um, I'm starting to play pickleball, planning on getting a, a cocker spaniel puppy uh, at the end of this year, early next, depending on the breeder schedule. And then... Equally important, spending more quality time with my husband, who recently retired as well. And so making sure I don't take him for granted. I love it. This is so (laughs) beautiful because you're still young enough that you can enjoy all these things. And you're still in good enough health that you can enjoy the travel, the time with your husband and still have a rich life. So it's not an either or. It's just different seasons and doing different things in different seasons. So I appreciate you sharing that there's life after retirement and and a profound life after retirement as well. So how can people reach you and get a hold of you if they'd like to know more or just connect with you? So I'd say the the easiest way would be uh, to check out my profile on LinkedIn. Send me a message there. Uh, Happy to connect and uh, you know, however I can help, I'd be uh, more than happy to. Thank you so much. That is such a blessing. I'm sure that there are many people out there who will benefit from a connection with you. <laughs> and so you might be flooded on LinkedIn. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so as we wrap things up today, what words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of executive business leaders? I'll start with being fearless. Um, I think that's made all the difference in the world and it's fearlessness connected with deep faith and trust that God has a plan. I, I think probably heard the term, you know, we plan God laughs because it, it can't be blind ambition as you're, as you're trying to maybe advance uh, in the world. It's success in the context of a broader life. And, you know, you should make sure that you, you allow Cut yourself a break, I would say, as well. You know, make sure that uh, all the different facets of your life, you, you don't ignore them. You know, there's different balances you need to have at any point in time. But, you know, don't forget your own self. Make sure that uh, you appreciate and love yourself and cut yourself a break over time. And realize the impact that you have on people. You may not realize it, but People are always watching. You know, the folks who work for you are always watching what you say, how you act, your facial expressions. And that has maybe an, an intended or unintended consequence on how they feel, how they act, what they're willing to take a risk on. And so I would realize that and, and be willing to take risks because, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And so I would uh, happy to help however I can. So feel free to reach out. Thank you so much, Allison. I really appreciate you being here with me today and sharing your experiences and also your wisdom with me and also with my audience. And I hope everyone gets high value. And to the audience, I'm going to say, you might have to go back and listen to this again. (laughs) There are lots (laughs) of uh, pearls of wisdom in there, Allison. Thank you for sharing with us. 
I'll just mention a couple of small things. You did a great summary at the end yourself. And I'll say, I think what really stood out to me is this whole business about setting a goal and not being afraid to set a high goal. And no matter where you're placed to really every day bring excellence, you know, to the work, because that's what people are going to see. And they're going to value that excellence so that those line leaders, even the business leaders, they're the ones who are going to ask for you because you're making a difference and really building into their lives. I heard also, even though you're in finance, there's a huge people component to this. Pay attention to the people around you, those high performance teams you were mentioning, the people you're going to mentor and develop, the legacy that you're creating every day, whether it be at work with those who are the people who you're mentoring and developing or across the world in the philanthropic activities. There's always a way that you can share the blessings, I'll say, that God has given you. And that's one of the things I've certainly heard in our conversation today. So I hope people will take those items as well as many others away. And so we will close with a Bible verse today that set of verses that comes from Psalm 34. And what I want people to think about is that a lot of times people taste God and know how good he is because of you. And so here are the verses I want us to meditate on. Psalm 34, 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So God is for you. He's out there waiting for you to ask for whatever it is you need. And not only does he create us, he also provides for us. And we've heard a great example today of how God has set the banquet table for his daughter, Allison, so she can taste and see that he is good and pass that on to someone else. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.